Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Um, well, if you guys have a Bible, you can take that out. We're going to be uh, diving in to uh, the next part of our series through Future Church. And um, this is a uh, this is kind of one of those sermons that I've had circled on my calendar for quite a long time. Because uh, for me, this is a kind of a, de- a definitive moment for us as a church of, uh, of kind of signifying... What's our true north? What's our anchor point? How do we make decisions? How do we gain direction? Specifically within the culture around us and the culture that's going to be continuing to change over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Who will we be as a church? And for us, uh, this is one of those moments where I want to be able to spend some time to just unpack who will we, how will we govern um, the decisions, the DNA, the culture of our church. And so tonight's message is that we are a community of orthodoxy in a culture of ideological idolatry. Um, I know that's kind of a mouthful, uh, but I wanted to, I, it needs a little bit of explaining. The word orthodoxy, some of you guys might like it, some of you guys might not, some of you might be indifferent to it. But the word, it comes from two Greek words, ortho and doxa. Ortho means right, doxa means belief, right belief. And it's kind of a little bit of an umbrella term, meaning anything that has kind of come under the teachings and the person and the way of Jesus as defined by Scripture. So what we're saying tonight is as a community, we are a people who will allow the Scriptures, allow this book to define how we think, how we operate, specifically the person and the teachings of Jesus Um, And how Jesus interprets and looks at this book. And realizing that every single one of us comes into a room like this uh, with presumptions. And and kind of bents left and right in this way and that way of how we understand God and how we govern life. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture tonight from the Apostle Paul writing a letter to his protege, Timothy, at the end of his life. A lot of scholars think this is the last letter he writes. And he's giving him a strong encouragement on what to do with this and how to govern life. So I want to read that together. And then for us as a community, begin to start unpacking that. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. So let's pause right here. Paul's framing everything he's about to say through the lens of his worldview. His worldview, Paul's worldview, is that we are in the presence of God. As he wrote that letter, he was in the presence of God. As Timothy read that letter, he's in the presence of God. And us, 2,000 years after the fact, as we read this, are in the presence of God, of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and dead in the view of his appearing and his kingdom. Meaning that there is an active kingdom here on earth and there's a kingdom that's coming. And so for Paul, this was how he perceived reality. And as he's writing this, he gives Timothy this charge. 
He says, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and discharge all the duties of your ministry. To think about Paul at the end of his life writing this young pastor over the church he planted in Ephesus. And he writes to them and he says, listen, there's going to come a day where we are going to gather around us a great number of teachers who are going to tell us what we want to hear. I couldn't think of a more accurate term to describe the world we live in now. I mean, we literally have algorithms to literally keep feeding us what we want to hear. We have, I have thousands of podcast options, books, at my fingertips that I get to select to continue to form what I think, what I want. And so we live in this, in this world. And so what do we do with that? And what that has caused is this high, high level of ideology. I Meaning we hold to these ideals, these ideas that have slowly turned into idolatry. Meaning that they're not just ideas we have or even convictions we have, but they're things that we actually gain our identity from and things that we ultimately place our trust in. And what Paul is, is, is calling Timothy to do, he says, I want you to go back to this. And he says, I want you to use this to correct, to rebuke, to encourage. I just want you to know, as a type 9 on the Enneagram, those first two words are hard for me to do often. Correcting and rebuking are not like my strength, my strong points. But as I'm reading this, before I preach it, I'm letting it hit me and I'm realizing the goal of this book is not to agree with every single thing that I think. And if it is, maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe there's something. This is not challenging me and forming me into something more like Jesus, more true to my God-given design and destiny, then there's a good chance that I might be missing this, or maybe I've turned this or my idea of God into something that ultimately pleases me. Um, I think about there's a university in Chicago where a professor gave gave a test out to his students as they entered in the class, and it was kind of a get-to-know-you kind of test. And so tell me about yourselves, and it was like generic stuff and things you like. But then it kind of got a little deeper and says, tell, you know, what do you think about God? What do you think about, how do you, what do you vote? Um, how do you vote? What kind of political leanings do you have? And things like that. And he collected all of it. It wasn't graded. A few months later, he gave another test out. Um, this test was all about God. And what his students were unaware of at the time is it was sent to the exact same questions, rephrased and repositioned. And so as he collected back the test, what he, and he did this for years and years and years, what he found is over 95% of the people who take this test assume that God is exactly like them. God would vote the same way they vote for. They, he's angry at the same things they're angry about. He, they're, he's passive about the same things they're passive about. And, and so what we've kind of, his, his own study, what is kind of this decision is, we have a tendency as human beings to take something as grand, mysterious, 
um, as the person and the, and the understanding of God and to actually just think, I'm going to figure out a way to make this just fit with me. And this is all of us. Um, John Tyson says it like this, we have democratized truth. We sit above the Bible judging it instead of sitting under it being formed by it. Tim Keller says that contemporary people tend to examine the Bible looking for things they can't accept. But Christians should reverse that, allowing the Bible to examine us looking for things God can't accept. Then the sweet grace offered, the beauty of his love, will mean something to you. Now, before we dive further into the message, I just want to pause and I want to acknowledge um, that in our two gatherings this morning, tonight, we're, we're in a room of people that are all on all ends of the spectrum as far as what they believe. Which makes it, uh, a conversation like this, a message like this, a little bit difficult. Because I know in, within our community, there are people who come on a pretty regular basis and they're not sure if they believe the Bible. They don't know if they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, there are people who come and they're like, yeah, I have some sort of experience, some sort of faith, but I'm not... I'm not sure really how this is going to play out and how I live my life. There's people who come to, who've been a part of church their entire life and would consider themselves incredibly faithful to whatever the scriptures teach. And there's, every, and there's everyone in between that spectrum. And one thing that I wanted to point out here tonight is, is number one, wherever you are on this, I'm so thankful you're here. And you're welcome, absolutely welcome in this place. My hope is that as we look at the teachings of Jesus and as we look at our culture tonight, that there would be a compelling, um, just a compelling narrative put forth tonight, that there is a very good reason to not only trust this as truth, but to actually trust it so much that you give your life to what this Bible is talking about. And at the same time, what I love about Paul's exhortation to Timothy, he says, do this with patience and careful instruction." So I just wanted to just frame this, that this isn't something like we're drawing a line in the sand tonight and we're like, you better get over it or not. You know, you're in or you're out. This is something that requires a lot of patience and careful understanding. So um, this might be the tip of the iceberg for some of you, and this might be the beginning of lots of conversations that we can have from here on out. But I do think this is a definitive moment as a church because this will frame how we'll answer some of those questions from here on out. And at the same time, by us saying that this is going to be kind of our true north, this is going to be the thing we come back to again and again, brings up a hundred other questions. Like, well, how do you interpret that? And what do you do about this and that and that passage? But again, it gives us, I think, a starting point for us to move forward. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of have three different themes tonight, three different things that we're going to be talking about. Number one is I want to ask the question, what is the story that you live into? And by story, that could, you could define that as worldview, meta-narrative. It could be the thing of how you make sense of reality. What story is that? Number two, where might there be some seduction in your story, in my story, of how we interpret reality and what we live into? And then the third question, which I think is really important that we all need to ask, is why the scriptures? Why should we pay attention to this? Why should we treat this as sacred and divine and the word of God? And so I want to get and begin with this question, what, what is this story? How do you define um, reality? How do you live into, how do you make sense of the world around you? Sociologists kind of give us a few things of how we define a worldview. 
Questions like, what is ultimately real? What is the nature of the world? What is the nature of humanity? What is the human predicament? What is the solution? What is ultimately good? And how can we know? We've been asking ourselves this question since we were toddlers. We've been grasping for a sense of reality. You know, what is the nature of humanity? What is the human predicament? How do we know the solution? Um, what is ultimately good? All of these things. And, and we have Paul who kind of opens it up, says, for him, his story he lives into is we're in the presence of God. God has come near. And Jesus is very much alive and that we should govern our life in such a way. And I think the question that we all have to wrestle with is, is this something that we deem as true and noteworthy? An interesting article that um, I came across is from Ben Sixsmith. He's uh, a journalist in the UK for The Spectator. And he's, uh, he's not American. He's British, looking in on American culture, and he's not a Christian. And he is... Uh, reflecting on a recent moral failure from uh, kind of a popular um, cultural uh, kind of celebrity pastor type. And he writes a really interesting article from a very unique perspective. He says this, There is mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, modish political activism, and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity, which is the, the title of his article, A Twist of Christianity. Most people stick with mainstream culture because they can have all those things and premarital sex. We can see, it's just kind of his little tongue-in-cheek thing. We can see the, with the twist of Christianity trend elsewhere. Jerry Falwell was representative of the right-wing, business-oriented evangelicals who offer capitalist self-enrichment and hubristic jingoism with a twist of Christianity. Then there are progressive Christians who promote the usual left-wing causes with the twist of Christianity. While different in beliefs, such people share patterns of thought. The former believes secular individualists mysteriously share God's wishes for what God should be doing with money, while the latter think that secular progressives mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with bodies. So if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I'm not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to be more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. I think that there's something about um, Ben Sixman's kind of observation from the outside looking in. Uh, recently, Lifeway Press did a study on people's relationship to the Bible. Are the screens working? Do we have the, those graphs um, up? Uh, so this is kind of what they came with. They measured 2014, 2016, 2018. This is very recent. The first thing they ask is the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it's not literally true. And we've seen that, that understanding grow in the past few years. Interestingly enough, though, the second question they ask is the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches, and that number is growing. Um, surprisingly. Thirdly, the Bible has the authority to tell us what we must do. That number is growing. 
And so a couple of observations of how can this be? How can we live in a culture that is increasing, um, increasing their understanding of the scripture is not literally true and it's kind of full of ancient myths, but it's helpful. And at the same time, a culture that's growing in, yeah, but this is authoritative. We should live our life by that. I think it goes back to that thing that we as human beings have a desire for an anchor point, a desire for some sort of compass to guide us through life, but we'd really like for it to just say what we'd like for it to say. And so we kind of arrived at this thing, not that we're doing away with the Bible, but we want to have a Bible that we can essentially do what we want with. And for us, before we start thinking this is kind of like a modern problem, or rather a postmodern problem, um, this isn't. All throughout Scripture, this is an ongoing thing that we see. Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. So you can just imagine Moses directing people, God's not like us. We can't just assume like he's this. And so all of us have to recognize that we are living into a story, a worldview that helps us define reality But if we're not careful, we will slowly over time start trying to make that worldview fit our kind of individualistic tendencies and desires. Which leads to our second point. Where is the seduction? Where do we start uh, kind of falling into this trap? Like he said in his letter, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Um, in my um, understanding, as I just look throughout culture and the people that I have coffee with um, throughout the week, is there's kind of two main things that are kind of, I, I would say, kind of seducing us away from uh, kind of an understanding like this should, this should govern our life. And the two things are idolatry and deconstruction. Um, deconstruction is a little bit of a more current buzzword. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But I want to just talk about the idea of idolatry. Now, if you grew up in church, when you think of idolatry, you just think of... Um, like for me, it's always had this like negative connotation. Like, oh, those are, those are bad things. We'll be turning to idols. But actually, idols aren't necessarily bad. They're things that have just changed priorities. Tim Keller says it like this. An idol is usually a good thing that we make ultimate. We say, unless I have that, I am nothing. And so this is, I see this all throughout my life, I see this all throughout our culture, where we've taken good things and turned them into God things. Specifically ideals. It's no longer like wood-carved totems, you know, or things like that, maybe, if that's your thing. Uh, but for the most part, they're, they're ideals that we've hold, held on to so tightly. Some of them which are very good, but we've turned them into ultimate. So I wanted to give you just a list of these, and just to see if any of these resonate within your heart. Just things that you're like... This is something that, again, I'm not saying this is bad or good. Most of these are amoral, and a lot of these are actually very positive. But we've held them to such a high standard in our lives, such a high virtue level, that they've actually gained our identity and our security, and sometimes even our worship. Uh, Number one, which is, again, very prevalent around here, is just individualism. We value the individual above community. It's a very Western thing, which means that we're driven much more by guilt than, let's say, honor and shame. Um, that for us, individual happiness is the ultimate goal that many of us are trying to strive to have. Again, individual being an individual is not a bad thing, but it's something that we've almost turned into um, 
somewhat of an idol that we worship and praise and seek after that. Along with that, there's success in careerism, this idea that I am only what I produce, so I have to produce and create and cultivate much, otherwise this affects who I am. Um, emotionalism, whatever I feel defines my sense of reality. Um, there's things kind of like the, the postmodern relativistic thing that there really is no truth and there really is no authority. And so it doesn't really matter um, what I live into. And so out of my distrust of those things, I'm going to lean into that. Uh, there is politics, which is huge within our nation right now. There's political conservatism, thinking that I have this ideal that things were better back then, so we need to do whatever we can to preserve to go back. Now, there's political progressivism, thinking that things how they were are not good, and we need to advance beyond what, how things are to get to a better place. And these two sort of ideals slowly have become idols in, in so many people's lives. There's materialism. Uh, there's even things like freedom. Uh, freedom, which is a great thing. We would, we would very much agree with that here. But yet when freedom becomes our source of identity and security and strength and worship... Um, we've moved it into a different category. Uh, creation's one I see all the time around here. We are, uh, we are obsessed with creation because we live near Cardiff. I mean, right? Like, you can just pull around that, like, Manchester thing. You just see, I mean, and for me, like, this is about as close I'm going to heaven on this side. I get it. But what we, we live in a culture that has elevated creation to the point where we have forgotten that there's a creator behind it. Um, think about virtues like kindness. And very prevalent here on the coast. And so what we start to think, what we start to think is we forget that God is kind and we start thinking that kindness is God. Or justice. We forget that God is just and we start thinking that justice is God. Even love. We forget that the scriptures tell us that God is love and we live in a world that wants to tell you that love is God. I think a lot of this can be kind of under the umbrella of what um, a lot of sociologists who's called secularism. We live in a godless society. There's no real spiritual realm. What we see is what we get. But I, it's important for us to understand we are a very small portion of the world and definitely a small portion of history that actually thinks like that. If you go to Africa right now, you don't have to be a Christian to think that we live in a very spiritual place. Go down to Latin America and we just realize, oh, this is, everything we see is not all that there is to the story. But we live, and, and again, I'm not talking about non-Christians, I'm talking about those within the church that has this secular mindset has seeped into our understanding. This, as a pastor, I've, even studying this week, I'm like, there's so much of my life that I don't assume that either God is at work or that there's some sort of spiritual realm at all. And so we have been formed by a very secular society. I don't say that in a negative connotation, more as a technical term. It's easier for us to believe that there must be a world, uh, that the, the real world is one that's not spiritual. It's finite, it's, it's earthy, we can see and touch it. And, but there's something, if you notice, specifically within the creative arts, that there's this bent towards, well, maybe there is something else. But we have to recognize that as we're doing that, there is this temptation within us that whether it's materialism or individualism or capitalism or individualism or, or, or you know, creation or love, kind of, whatever the thing is, we can lean into these certain ideals so much that they're no longer ideals or idols. 
and for us to come back to and say, if we're not careful, then, then this no longer is, is forming us. And by when I hold this, I hope you know, and we'll talk about this in a minute, it's the centerpiece of this story, which is ultimately the life and the person of Jesus Christ. And we're left with this, this idolatry that has seeped in. Jackie Hill Perry in her book, Holier Than Thou, says it's the foundation of idolatry. The sin beginning all others is a specific belief about God. Our perverse sexual ethics, wild tongue, religious superiority, dark thoughts, legalistic posture, mean ways, impatient moods, greedy antics, intellectual arrogance, and rebellious tendencies come out of what we believe about the living God. I think that's one of the things that has been really seductive in our culture. The second thing, I just want to just touch on the term. We haven't ever really mentioned it here at the church. Um, But kind of within a certain kind of subculture, there's this term deconstruction that's going around. And and for those who um, would consider themselves progressive, it's a positive term. For those who consider themselves maybe more traditional or orthodox, it would be more like a frightening term. What does that mean? Uh, my friend Joshua Ryan Butler is um, an amazing pastor and author. He, he defines this as deconstruction is kind of a junk drawer term. It's not all bad. It's not all good. You have to kind of define it. So he kind of presents two modes of deconstruction. One is the phrase, did God really say? Um, if you are familiar with the, the opening of scriptures, this is the phrase that the serpent uh, tempted Eve and Adam with. Did God really say? And this mode of deconstruction is sowing suspicion into God's character. Um, which I find it fascinating that the core of every sin, every kind of fallenness within humanity, is this idea to sow suspicion that God is actually truly good and desires what's best for us. But there's a second mode of, of deconstruction, and this comes from the words of Jesus when he says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And this mode is dismantling unhealthy traditions that revolve around God's word and character. Believe it or not, it's not enough for me to say, like, read it, do it, that's us. Because the reality is, is people have used this book, unfortunately, for incredibly destructive things. And so there should be a healthy level of deconstruction in us that, just like Jesus said, is to go back and to understand the heart of God in what is being said as defined specifically by Jesus. We're not Jesus. We don't have the authority to to do that like he does. But as we look to Jesus, he will give us the true definition of what the Bible is truly saying. And we need to be careful about traditions and things we hold so tightly to that are ultimately, the Bible is either quiet on them or it's gray about them. And understanding, coming to the point, says, no, no, this is, we need to come back and understand what is the heart of God as revealed by Jesus in the whole of Scripture. So there's kind of these two modes. Um, and within these, there's kind of four main reasons why people start deconstructing their faith. There's a thousand reasons. These are just a few. Uh, number one is church hurt. The people have been genuinely hurt by the church. And they walk away from their experience just thinking, like, I don't know if I can believe in a God that's associated with that. And I just, again, if that's you, um, I just want to validate your experience and saying, man, this, that's really hard. It's really hard to belong to a community of people that have either been abusive or damaging or toxic and to walk away from that with a healthy understanding of what to do with the scriptures and what to do with God. 
The second thing is poor teaching. I think it's important for us to realize that Satan used the Bible to try and tempt Jesus. So misusing the scriptures is, is something that is incredibly um, demonic. And sadly, human beings are, are sometimes really a fault of that. And because there's been poor teaching of scripture, people choose to walk away from scripture altogether rather than approaching it carefully and patiently like Paul said so that we can gain a clearer understanding of that. Thirdly, there's people who are just there. It's an attempt to justify sin. Again, I don't think this is everyone, but there's definitely some people that I've met that start living a certain lifestyle. And for them, that lifestyle is so important to them that they have to come back to the scripture or, or to walk away from the scripture and say, I just can't believe in a God that. And in that statement, I think what's unfortunate about that is it helps, it's our attempt to form God or his word into something that gives allowance to the decisions that we want to make in life rather than having a level of trust to say, God, I actually don't trust myself to define good and evil. I don't trust myself to define what is ultimately good, but I'm going to trust you with that. And I know some of these areas are gray and complex, and when they're gray and complex, I'm going to say that. But I also want to ultimately trust you with that. And something else just to point out, there is definitely motivational incentive, not for everyone. And for some people, it's incredibly painful. But there is a lot of people right now just making a lot of money on deconstruction. Um, and I just think that's important just to point out, that there's people, unfortunately, that have, um, are profiting on, on some really um, destructive, um, really hard seasons that people are walking through. And I think as a community, for us, for those of us, like I said in the very beginning, that are all into the spectrum of where we approach the scriptures and how we understand God and who Jesus is, is that this would be a place that we are sensitive and humble and recognize that um, we are all on this journey and to really be cautious of anyone or anything that is kind of being incentivized in this. Which kind of leads to kind of my final point tonight, and I think it's a really, really important question is if we live in a culture that is filled with ideological idolatry and deconstruction and how do we know what truth is and all of these things, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, why the scriptures? Is this ancient library of books worth our time? Is it worth our life? And I just really think that that's a really, really important question to ask. And this is for us. I, I want to kind of give us three things tonight of why, not just my, when I say I, it's with, I'm, I'm accompanied with thousands of other incredible and brilliant men and women who um, believe this, why this is worth our trust and our faith and why this, we use this to govern our life and our community. Why the scriptures? So the three things are this. It's a reliable story. It's a better story. And it's a beautiful story. So I want to walk through these things uh, with you. The first one is it's a reliable story. Um, I'm just going to give you fair warning. The next five minutes, I'm just going to nerd out on you for a bit. Um, some of you guys love this stuff. Some of you guys are like, okay, check my phone. Check the Packers score. Pray for them. Um, but the Bible is a reliable story. I want to talk to you about the literature, the textual soundness, and the historical soundness of this book. From a literary standpoint... 
If I were to make up a sacred text, it would not be the Bible. For a number of reasons. And one of those reasons is, is as I look at this, because of that, there is a literary soundness to this. For a few specific reasons, there's tons, but let me just give you a few. Because this is 66 books written by multiple authors in multiple cultures in multiple language over over a thousand years, telling one redemptive story, at some point it's no longer a coincidence. At some points, this that's actually for me. This is evidence for this must be miraculous. This must be divine. And within this book, there's two things that I find really, really captivating. Number one is it's filled with predictive prophecy. And by predictive prophecy, meaning that it is filled with very specific things saying this will happen when. And those things are, have all come true, have all come to pass. Specifically about this person who would be the Messiah, there's over 360 prophecies that are given. Jesus fulfills every single one of them. Texas Christian University years ago did a study on what it would take for a human being in that time to fulfill eight of those prophecies. And they came up with this analogy I think is brilliant. If you filled up the entire state of Texas with silver dollars all the way up to your knees, and then you marked an X on one of those silver dollars and you took a helicopter ride and just threw it in the middle of Texas, and you had one opportunity to go and pick the right silver dollar you'd have a better chance of that than being someone fulfilling eight of the prophecies in the Old Testament. Eight. And Jesus fulfills 360 of them. So the fact that Jesus was even able to fulfill them is, is fascinating. But then Jesus lives this sinless life, dies on the cross, and then predicts he will raise again in three days, which he does. And those scriptures are written by eyewitnesses in the presence of eyewitnesses, or in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And again, this is problematic because even our judicial system today is built around eyewitnesses. And the only thing better than eyewitnesses is eyewitnesses seeing eyewitnesses' testimony. Because if I were to make something up, and if I were to go and be like, man, Jesus raised from the dead, and he's like, no, that's fascinating. I, I guess I believe you, you seem trustworthy. But if I go and I'm like, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, and someone's like, yeah, I actually saw that too. Meaning that my ability to give an eyewitness account in the presence of other living eyewitnesses that's untruthful becomes incredibly problematic for me. But incredibly strengthened if it's true. And so because of the eyewitnesses writing this in the, uh, in the presence of other eyewitnesses, because of the predictive prophecies that are fulfilled again and again and again, specifically in the person of Jesus, there's literary soundness. And this is coming from someone who's I'm in graduate school right now studying this stuff. I just spent a year reading through the entire Bible. So I'm just like, walk away. I'm just like, holy cow. Like, I don't know if that's offensive. Maybe to cows. But I'm just like, I walk away from that. I'm just like, this is unbelievable. Like, what's being built in this book? But what's amazing is not only is it literarily, literarily sound, it's textually sound. I don't know if you knew this, but there's 20,000 handwritten manuscripts of the Bible within the first few centuries. 20,000. The only other ancient document that even comes close to it would be Homer's Odyssey, which has around 2,000. And so 10 times that amount, we have these handwritten manuscripts of the Bible. And because of recent archaeology, they have discovered more and more of these articles. And for 100 years ago, there began to be this camp that was really afraid of textual criticism, meaning, oh my gosh, what if they find something that's not true to our King James Version Bible? And it was a, it was a legit fear. They're like, what is this going to do for us? 
But what's interesting is as those manuscripts and more manuscripts are discovered and discovered and again and again, what they have found is the New Testament you have sitting in your lap is over 96% exact same manuscripts that were written back then. And the other 4%, which makes up about 400 words in the New Testament, have no theological significance. They're clarifying prefixes or things like that that would have been added to give clarity, but they don't change the story, the message, one bit. One example of this is when they discovered that the Dead Sea Scrolls in the late 1940s, one of the greatest archaeological finds of our time. They found an entire book of Isaiah, sorry, scroll of Isaiah, 200, dated 200 years before Christ, and they unrolled it, took it to a research lab in Germany, and what they found is it was the exact same book of Isaiah that you have sitting in your lap right now. And so there is... Again, archaeology is now actually leaning into helping prove that, that there's a textual soundness, that this isn't just a version. This is, this is what was written. We can trust that these are the things that are written too. And they're, yes, they're, there's a human element to it. They're written by God through human beings. And so we need to pay attention to those things and the culture and the context for sure. But there's a soundness to the text. But the last thing I wanted to point out is there's historical soundness. So this, this shift in archaeology and the scientific age of the past 200 years, and specifically the last 100 years, um, has just absolutely changed kind of the, the Mediterranean, specifically around Israel and Greece. And over all of these digs, what they're finding is that um, there is these two camps. One is like, this is exciting, it proves the Bible. There's another camp saying, if we find the right thing, this will disprove the historicity of the Bible. And so that camp really kind of had one shining star in that when they have done all the excavation around Jericho, which we know where Jericho is, between the years 1600 B.C. and 1200 B.C., there is no life there, which is problematic because the walls of Jericho came down in 1440 B.C., right in the middle of it. And so for a long time, people were using that to scrutinize the authenticity of the biblical story. Until recently, they just started digging a few miles south of Jericho. And they found a city that had been demolished. But what was interesting about the city that had been demolished is two things. Number one is that in, in the midst of the rubble, there was not only burnt wood, but there was burnt grain. What's fascinating about that is in ancient cultures, you would destroy a city by laying siege to it, meaning you would cut off water and food supply. So the fact that this city was destroyed with grain still in its walls, meaning something traumatic had to happen to it. And when they went and did the carbon dating, three different ways too, what they found is that the year literally dated to 1440 BC, which is the exact year that, that the walls of Jericho came down. And again, that, that's one story. It's fascinating. But one archaeologist points out that there is 35,000 archaeological finds and every single one of them has proven the historicity of the Bible. It's fascinating. To the point where A.N. Sherwin-White, who's a Roman historian, not a Christian, says this, any attempt to reject the Bible's basic historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. So we have a reliable story. Why the Bible? Well, this is, there, there's not a more reliable ancient text or even sacred text that exists within the world. The second thing is this, this is a better story. And I say that with all humility, but I also say that with all the confidence that I have within me. I just want to put up the list of what makes a worldview um, up one more time. 
So this, again, I didn't make this up. This is what sociologists agree upon. This is what makes a worldview. And all of us have some sort of belief system that helps us make sense of these questions. What is ultimately real? What is the nature of the world? And so I, what I would love for you to do is to take any sort of meta-narrative worldview, and I want you to see how it answers those questions. You just look at secularism. What is ultimately real? What you can see and touch. What is the nature of the world? It's an incredibly complex accident that we're not exactly sure how it came about. What is the nature of humanity? Where atoms put together and the things that we feel are ultimately just chemical reactions happening and firing within our brain to continue the evolution of humankind. D, what is the human predicament? There is no human predicament. What is the solution? Whatever you want it to be. What is, the ulti- what is ultimately good? We can't actually know that. And how can we know? We just do. Um, and again, I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm just saying it's sec- the secular worldview is incredibly depressing because it, its inability to answer some of these questions. Well, let's just, let's just look at the Christian worldview, what it's presenting here. What is ultimately real? What is ultimately real is what you see, feel, your body, soul, and mind, what's here and beyond it because there is a creator God in his design created the world that's around us. What is the nature of the world? It is good and blessed, but it has been tainted because of sin. What is the nature of humanity? That every single person in this room and outside this room was created with an incredible sense of divine dignity called the Imago Dei. Meaning no matter what you can contribute in the world, you matter and you have a part and an image of God that you bear with it. What is the human predicament? We call it sin. It means that there's something where we've missed the mark. It's created vandalism to our soul and the world around us. And it gives a, the Bible gives a really, really clear definition of the conflict that we have and the problem of evil. What is the solution? His name is Jesus. That God, as he looked at the human problem, moved towards us, not away from us, through his son. And what is ultimately good, what is ultimately good is what God has come to reconcile all things to himself and has offered that thing. And how can we know? Because God didn't leave us up to our thing. He says, you know what, I want them to know so badly. I'm actually going to come as one of them in the flesh to go and live this life. I mean, it's, it is incredibly, I don't know about you, it gives me peace knowing that this, we have a better story, not better in a competitive way, not better in a prideful way, better in a more grounded sense of reality to this. But the last thing I wanted to point out, and I think this is the thing I wanted to say more than anything else, is not only do we have a reliable story, a better story, we have a beautiful story. It's the story of a God who out of his goodness and abundance creates and breathes life into creation. And even when that creation becomes tainted and wrong, he commits himself through covenant relationship not to move away from us in his holiness, but to move towards us, not denying his holiness, but as he moved towards us to come to this climactic point of the story, to send his only son to live the human experience so that as he finds himself on 
on the cross, there's this incredible exchange saying the shame that you carry, the brokenness you carry, the sin that you've borne, the things that have been done to you and you've done to others, I'm going to take that upon myself and in exchange I'm going to give you my righteousness so that everything that has been broken and out of joint can be put back into its right order and you can now carry with yourself the righteousness that Jesus had adopted as sons and daughters into the kingdom of the beloved and that you can share in an eternal inheritance that not even death itself can stop and that who is invited into the story everyone it is God's will that none should perish you are invited into this reality of the story and as we come to this thing that says this is not just end in this life but it continues all throughout and echoes throughout all of eternity and in the very centerpiece of this beautiful story is someone named Jesus and for me, it's the person of Jesus that has captivated my soul more than anything in the entire world. Which leads me to the whole point tonight. Why do we believe the Bible? Well, because Jesus did. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That word fulfill is the Greek word telos. Think of the word telescope. It is the center point, the focal point where everything is heading. He says, I am where everything in scripture is heading. I'm the focal point. It all is being fulfilled here through me. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I think what's so unfortunate is there's so many people who, are, who consider themselves followers of Jesus and they have, and they have treated the Bible as some sort of weaponry against culture rather than seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of it and allowing Jesus to be the interpretive lens for us to see from Genesis to Revelation. This is the ultimate fulfillment of who God is. This is why Andrew Wilson in his book says this, I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. We are a community who are committing ourselves to the way of Jesus. And as we do that, I just want to just let you know from the get-go, this does not mean that every answer, every question will be answered. And it doesn't mean that the answers we do get will always be comfortable. But for me, this is the, this is the greatest story to live into. It's to be faithful to Jesus and for him to, to recognize that he's patient with me in my journey. And when I when I obsess about ideological idolatry, when I, when I choose to walk away from things that are too hard for me to understand, he walks with me. I mentioned this a couple um, weeks ago, but I just love the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 when 
Two of his disciples are walking away from Jerusalem and the resurrected Christ shows up and walks with them away from it. This is the God that we serve and so I just wanted to extend this this week no matter where you are. Would this at least be worth your time to consider? And for those of you who have already made that decision, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, would you use this to evaluate where have things in your life begin to be swayed by this or that? And could we come back to the person and the teachings of Jesus and how he interprets the Bible and use that as our compass, the thing that gets us through life, the story that we adopt? Um, if, if this... If what we're talking about tonight, I mean, I know this is what happens when you have a sermon of three weeks to sit on it. I didn't even go through all my notes. There's so much here. But I will say this. If this has piqued your interest and like, I need to know more about this. This is, maybe it's compelling, but I'm not sure if I'm convinced. I just want to recommend four books that have been helpful for me. Um, Dan Kimball's book, How Not to Read the Bible, I think is brilliant. It's very, it's very easy read. Joshua Ryan Butler's Skeletons in God's Closet, another really great work. If you're in the process of deconstructing your faith and, and it frightens you, you don't know how to reconstruct. Anyways, I would just encourage you to read my friend AJ Swoboda's book, After Doubt. It's incredible. If you are like just like to nerd out on things, there's a really large book called Can We Still Believe the Bible? That's brilliant. Um, and he literally goes through every single textual variant and how to understand things and how to arrive at certain conclusions. It's really, really amazing. But all that to say, at some point, we have to recognize that we serve a relational God who's not trying to get us to sign on a dotted line of a certain side of belief. He's inviting us into a relationship. And relationships take trust. But this is not blind faith. This is an incredibly reliable one, but it still takes trust. And so what I'd love for us to do this week as we conclude is that every week we've been giving you a practice to accompany this series of how we are to approach culture. And this week, shouldn't be a shock to you, the practice is reading scripture. Um, I think it's really important to point, point out you are being discipled by something. Um, whether it's your social media feed, your news channel of choice, the radio station, the podcast you listen to, the friends you sit down with. We're being formed by something. And all I would like to invite us to is, why not be formed by this? Could we choose to set aside time throughout our day? For me, for the morning is so important. And to open up the Bible, not to check a box, but to allow it to speak to us, inform us. Let it challenge us, rebuke us sometimes, encourage us. For us to challenge our understanding of God. If, if any one of us in this room thinks like, oh, I've got to figure it out, then I, we've totally missed it, including myself. There's so much more that we ought to learn. Um, and, and figure out something that works for you. If it's a Bible app, if it's doing it with your open table, finding a buddy to do, have accountability with. Um, recently for me, I've decided that for the rest of my life, I know this is a big statement, um, I want to do my best. Not, I'm not trying to be rigid or perfect here, but I want to do my best to read a chapter of the gospel every day. In one of the four Gospels, I just want to read about Jesus. Because the older I get, I know the more I'm going to get stuck in my ways. I want to get stuck in the way of Jesus. I just want to continue to read again and again and again. The life and the teachings and the way of Jesus. And so whatever it is for you, grabbing the Lectio Divina, just take it. Literally, it's, it's, just take it. It's free. Um, 
just allow the word of God. Um, a lot, something that the, the church has been doing for um, literally hundreds and hundreds of years is praying through the Psalms. Just open up, again, if this is a starting point for you, just open up to the Psalms. Instead of just reading it like in, for academic purposes, pray it. This is one of the most inviting, honest, human things we could ever do. Just pray through the Psalms. So whatever that looks like for you, let's allow Scripture to take part in our formation this week. Um, Would you guys stand to your feet with me? I'm going to pray. Thanks for being patient with me tonight. I know I went a little bit longer than normal. God, it's such a gift that I'm not standing up here just saying, like, here's what I think about God. I, I, we, have, we have the gift of Scripture. And Lord, thank you that the telos of Scripture isn't an idea or an ideal. It's your Son. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just confess every single one of us tonight that we... I know there's things inside of us we've gotten wrong. They've been distorted. And so we're just coming humbly tonight and saying, Lord, would you help correct those things? Including, including me, Lord. Things that I've held on to too tightly that don't accurately portray you, would you loosen my grip tonight? Lord, areas of distrust that have been sown in my heart, I pray that you would mend those. God, I relinqu- relinquish the role of controlling my definition of evil and good. Holy Spirit, would you help me trust in your goodness and your beauty? Lord, I pray that this would continue to be a space and a community of people of all across the spectrum, Lord Jesus. Because, Lord, those are the people you sat down and had meals with. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be a community formed like you. Lord, thank you again for the scriptures. I pray that you just continue to help us be a community that's faithful to your teachings, to the word of God. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.